Thanks, Carson. Uh, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you. Thanks for being here at the 930 service. Uh, it's good to be together this Sunday. And uh, last week we started a new sermon series uh, titled Encountering Jesus. We're going to spend 12 weeks in total uh, together in the four Gospels of the New Testament, focusing on the life of Jesus. Uh, Christianity at its core is a message about salvation through a Savior. And so for 12 weeks, we're going to look at this Savior and we're going to seek to understand his salvation more and more. Uh, over and over, what we will see in this series, uh, and hopefully every Sunday here at Christ Central, is that Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, that is the, the message of Christianity. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus' encounter with John the Baptist, at uh, Jesus' baptism in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and in the baptism account in Matthew, the Spirit of God descends and rests upon Jesus. And then the voice of God the Father is heard proclaiming over Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And at Jesus' baptism, all signs point to the truth that there is something deeply special about Jesus. But then there's this abrupt interruption. And right after the baptism, the Spirit sends Jesus not into the cities, not into the centers of influence, but into a barren desert, into the wilderness. And here we will see Jesus being tested while he is at his weakest. He is hungry, isolated, tired, and the question arises, how will Jesus respond to being tested? So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to give attention to the reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word to us this morning. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that as you spoke and created in the beginning, you have spoken and you re recreate in us by your word and by your spirit. And so we pray that you would use the words that were just read to be a, a transforming power as you usher us into your presence so that we can hear Christ this morning, that you might remove me, the preacher, so that Christ and Christ alone is encountered. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in this time. Lord, we pray that you would push back the darkness and bring the kingdom of God to bear more and more in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. 
Recently, uh, Rachel, my wife and I watched an Apple TV series called Drops of God. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but the premise of the show is that Alexander Legere, a famous enneologist, which is an expert in the science of wine, dies. And over his lifetime, Alexander Legere has collected the most expensive collection of wine in the world, valued at over $150 million. And Alexander has an estranged relationship with his daughter, Camille Legere, and a more formal mentoring relationship with a young enneologist named Issei Tomine. And in his last will and testament, he decides to put both of them through a three-part test. And the winner of the test is the one who will inherit the entire wine collection. The loser gets nothing. I won't spoil the show for you. It's a great show. Uh, you can watch it if you want to. But we found ourselves glued to the show as both daughter and student were tested and tried, having to prove themselves and pass the test in order to win this wine collection. There is something in humanity that really enjoys seeing other people tested. Right? We celebrate when people pass the test. We love to see displays of resilience and grit as people overcome adversity. And there's something in us that also enjoys seeing someone stumble and falter at a test. Right? Tests have a revealing power. They reveal what is already present in a person, whether it be knowledge, skill, or character. Tests reveal what a person is made of, which is probably why we are enamored at other people being tested, but don't love it when we're tested. Now, this morning, we are going to look at the greatest test that we will face by looking at Jesus' greatest test. There's three points this morning that I want us to look at. The first is there's a real enemy who tests. The second is the center of the test. The third point is the power for the test. In Matthew chapter four, in our passage this morning, Jesus encounters the greatest of tests as the tempter, the adversary, the enemy enters the story. And so I want us to look first at a real enemy who tests. The Bible, it teaches very clearly that in this world there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of God, which is marked by love, grace, justice, and peace. And there's an opposing kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, which is marked by pride, hate, oppression, and fear. And from the very beginning of the Bible, we read of a cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, right after God created a good world filled with flourishing, the first humans are tested by a tempter. And Adam and Eve fail the test. And in what feels like a moment, Adam and Eve are removed from the flourishing of Eden where God was dwelling with them in perfect communion to then be exiled into the wilderness where God's presence was absent. And here in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, in the beginning of the, the New Testament, we read that the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness and the tempter is there testing Jesus. Now it's necessary for us to first address the question of the supernatural here. Our passage this morning is all about the devil. And there is a denial of the supernatural in our modern world. We all would agree with that. You may find yourself already this morning tuning me and the Bible out as I'm starting to talk about the devil. Belief in the supernatural is mocked by many. I was recently listening to a, an episode of the podcast Unheard. It was an interview with evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, who was one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. And over and over, Dawkins mocked the belief in the supernatural. And it's out of this that, that many people today want to reduce evil to, the, to psychological and sociological factors. 
believing that if we address social issues and social conditions or we fix psychological issues with pharmacological treatments, then we can then rid the world of evil. But the Bible warns that if we are only materialistic and reductionistic in our view of the world, we're in big trouble because there is a real enemy who wants to inflict real harm. The book Silence of the Lambs, which was turned into a movie in 1991, it's about the serial killer Hannibal Lecter. And there's a scene when Officer Starling goes in to interview Hannibal Lecter, and she's looking at him considering all the gruesome things that he has done, and she asks this question, what happened to you that made you like this? And Hannibal Lecter looks at Officer Starling and says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling, I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? Hannibal Lecter asked her a question that her worldview couldn't answer. See, Officer Starling is the quintessential modern person who thinks that someone does something bad because something happened to you, that it was caused from outside a person and that it couldn't come from inside a person. A Christian worldview teaches us that there is a real enemy who causes evil to come from inside a person and outside a person, that individuals and systems and structures alike inflict evil. And one of my favorite movies of all times is Usual Suspects. Ends with Verbal Kent, played by Kevin Spacey, quoting philosopher Charles Baudelaire, where Verbal Kent's walking down the road and he says, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. Church, there's nothing more evil than denying evil. And if we don't know the real enemy, when we're tested by the enemy, we'll fail the test because we're not ready for the test. The second thing I want us to look at is the center of the test. Jesus, after being baptized, is sent into the wilderness and the devil tempts Jesus three different times. The first temptation turns stone into bread. The temptation is for Jesus to meet an immediate need. The second temptation, throw yourself from the temple to, pr to prove that God will save you. The, the temptation is for Jesus to do something spectacular. The third is worship the devil and you'll get the kingdoms of the world. The temptation is for Jesus to be successful. Now, the interesting thing about these three temptations is that later in Jesus' life, he will do all three things. He will turn stone into bread and feed 5,000. 5, he will willingly die and his father will save him. And in his resurrection life, he will be the exalted king of the kingdom. So the question is, what would have been the harm in doing any of these things when all these things were legitimate things for Jesus to have wanted? The answer is that if Jesus took the bait on any of these things, it would have been the first time that he used his miraculous power to meet his own needs. Satan was tempting Jesus to go another way than the cross. He was tempting Jesus to not be a servant, to not be a substitute, but Jesus be an example, be a guide, but don't be a savior. He is attacking the center of Christianity and he's crafty. He's using this if-then tactic. If God is who he says he is, then do this. Satan uses this if-then tactic on Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis to get them to question the love and the goodness of God, and he's doing it again here with Jesus. Herein lies the center of the, of the test, to doubt and question 
the proclamation that the Father had made over Jesus at his baptism, which is the same proclamation that God makes over us, that you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and in you I am well pleased. The enemy wants us to question the love and the goodness of God. Let me give you three ways the enemy does this. The first is by creating doubt when we find ourselves in the wilderness. Our text says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit didn't lead Jesus into temptation, but the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The wilderness for us are those times in our lives when we feel the circumstances of life pressing in against us. We've all been there. Where we experience being lonely, tired, weak, afraid, And it's in the wilderness times that the enemy uses the if-then tactic. If God is loving, then why do I feel so lonely and so discouraged? If God is good, then why did this person not love me the way I love them? Or why did this person leave me or hurt me? If God is able, then why doesn't he provide in the ways that I'm asking? Why doesn't he remove the obstacles and open up doors? If-then tactic of the enemy. When we're tempted... We're tempted in in these times when our our circumstances are painful and we're tempted to doubt the truth of the goodness and love of God. But if Jesus experienced great blessing at at his baptism and then the Spirit sends him into the wilderness, why would we expect anything different in this world? An ordinary life for all of us, it's not always smooth and good. And just because there are problems, it doesn't mean you screwed up or that God screwed up. Sometimes we find ourselves in the wilderness because God has led us there. And he knows that in the wilderness, it can be a place of transformation and a place of deeper understanding of God's love and goodness if we trust him there. Another way that the enemy attacks our heart's trust in the love and the goodness of God is by offering lies to the unredeemed territories of our hearts. James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15 says, Each person is tempted When he's lured and enticed by his own evil desire, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Test can reveal character. Temptation from the enemy seeks to change the human heart. And the way the enemy seeks to do this is by honing in on our disordered loves and desires. More often than not, the enemy tempts all of us by attacking good desires and good loves and seeks for us to make them ultimate so that our loves and desires become disordered because we love the good things of God more than we love God himself. The enemy comes in and, and attacks things like ambition, relationships, our children, work, sex, all good things if rightly ordered. But when these things become ultimate things and we love them more than God himself, we begin to be lured away and enticed away from God. As I prepared for this sermon, I came across something from a 14th century monk named Father Maximus. He created a a diagnostic tool to understand the spiritual dimensions of the heart. Five stages uh, that we uh, go through as we face the temptation of the enemy. And I, I found this very helpful. I'm going to share it with you this morning. The first stage that Father Maximus says exists is assault. Assault is when the mind is attacked by an evil thought. Right? Temptation doesn't grab your body and, and force you to do something. That's coercion. Temptation is when we're tested by an evil thought. 
The second stage is interaction. This is when a person opens up dialogue with that evil thought. Now, the reality is everybody in here has crazy thoughts that run through our head all throughout the week. The issue is when we open up dialogue with an evil thought. Stage one, a thought comes by. Stage two is thinking, hold on for a second. Let's talk about that. And then stage three is consent. So a person consents to do what the evil thought urges them to do. This is handing over the car keys to the evil thought. Stage four is captivity. A person becomes hostage to the evil thought. It becomes more and more difficult to resist the evil thought. And then stage five is obsession. The evil thought is now my thought. The evil thought is now running me. So stage one and two are temptation. Sin's not being committed. You're being assaulted with an evil thought. Maybe you're interacting with that thought with a very real enemy. Stage three is the decision to sin. Stage four is becoming hostage to sin. Stage five is becoming ingrained in a sinful habit. Now catch the progression of this. The goal of temptation from the enemy is captivity and obsession. Becoming further and further away from connection with God. And he lures us away from God by speaking and whispering lies to the unredeemed territories of our hearts, to the things we find ourselves loving more than God. The third and last way that the enemy attacks our hearts, trust, and the love and the goodness of God is by seeking to take us out of commission from God's mission. Jesus is baptized into the Father's mission to bring salvation to the world. And the enemy temptation to Jesus is to go a different way than the Father's way, to use his power for himself rather than saving the world. Yet Jesus remains faithful knowing there is no other way for salvation to come to the world than by being a substitute on the cross. Jesus had to do for us what we could not do, poured out his life for the sake of the world. He had to be the high priest who made a way through his life, death, and resurrection so that now we who are in him can pour our lives out for the sake of the world. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam succumbed to temptation, he ceased being what God created him to be, a priest to the world, mediating God and God's ways to the earth. And instead, Adam became a slave. He gave up his identity He gave up his vocation, and he gave up his connection to God. And one of the main ways the enemy wants to tempt us is for us to become ineffective in our vocation and in God's mission. The enemy wants us to spend our lives for ourselves rather than pouring our lives out for the sake of the world. We're in a real cosmic battle. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. And as Christians, we have an identity as little Christ in this world. We all have a vocation like Adam in the garden to point to Christ and to his kingdom in word, in deed, in all that we do. So a big question I have for you this morning is, are you living in your identity as God's beloved? And are you living on God's mission as his priest in the world? Has the enemy taken you out of commission Do you wake up each morning knowing that today is going to be a fight? Each morning knowing that there is a real battle with a real enemy, that our greatest battle each and every day is not against what is seen, but against what is unseen. There are real cosmic forces and powers that wage war against Christ and his kingdom, Ephesians 6, verse 12. 
And I know what I'm talking about. It takes a spiritual imagination to believe that what is unseen is more real than the seen. But if we don't believe there is a real cosmic battle, we will be a bunch of sleepy Christians who sit idly by, living for ourselves, and our main goal in life will be to retire early so that we can go sit on a beach or live in the mountains. And the enemy will be winning because we've been convinced that there is no enemy and there is no battle. Early church father Clement of Alexandria wrote this about the early church. He said, Christians gathered for worship. They engaged in the combat of prayer. A ragtag army without weapons, made up of God-fearing old men, God-beloved orphans, widows armed with gentleness, men adorned with love, and they asked God to reduce the violence of demons to impotence by confident commands. And historians think the early church probably stood as they prayed with hands raised, asking God to defeat the darkness. And as I read that quote from Clement of Alexandria earlier this week, I, I wondered, is that, the, is that the picture of the church in America? Is that the picture of our church, Christ Central? I want it to be. We have a real enemy who is vying for our hearts. The last thing I want us to look at is... Where's the power for us to resist and, and to pass the test? Uh, my oldest son asked me this week uh, what I was preaching on as we were eating dinner as a family. And I told him, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus being tempted by the devil. And he quickly responded, oh, I love that story. <laughs> and I was like, you do, buddy? He's like, I said, why? And he said, because Jesus resisted. And I don't think I could have resisted. And I thought, wow, he, he gets it. Because Christianity is Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's our Savior. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. God provides a way for us when we are tempted. And it's not that we need to become more gritty and more resolute. It's not a new approach or a personal improvement plan. The way out is a person, Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus is our great high priest and he was tempted in every way but without sin. Jesus is obedient where we are disobedient. He is faithful where we are faithless. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves and so catch this, church. The power for the test comes when stage one becomes stage two in Father Maximus's diagnostic. And we begin interacting with this evil thought. And then in that moment, we choose to commune with a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than to consent to the evil thought. We choose to encounter Jesus. And Jesus clearly shows us two ways to do that in our passage. Scripture and prayer. Jesus counters the lie of the enemy each time with the truth of God in his word. Right? Scripture is the truth of God that guides our conversations with God, which is prayer. And so when the test and temptation come our way, we know there is one who was tempted in the same way but was faithful. And we don't need to carry the burden. We can walk with him who carries the burden for us. We can open up God's word and know the truth of God and we can pray with God. Now listen to me. 
If you grew, grew up at all within the church, we're tempted to take scripture and prayer and think they're silver bullets to slay the enemy. But all of a sudden, we can just, with, with scripture and the word, but the scripture and, uh, scripture and prayer, they are simply means that take us to the person of Christ who conquers the enemy. They take us to Jesus who conquers the, 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 the prince and the rulers of the powers of darkness. I don't know how many of you have seen the Virginia state flag. It's probably one of my favorite flags, state flags. Not like I've studied all the state flags in America, but uh, I like this state flag because if you've ever seen it, the picture, uh, there's a picture of a soldier stepping on the throat of a ruler. And, and the, the ruler is underneath the foot of this soldier. The crown has fallen off. It has laying on the ground. And the motto of the Virginia state flag is Six Semper Tyrannus, which means thus always to tyrants. And I've always loved this flag because this is the picture of the gospel. That Jesus has done this to the prince of darkness. Genesis 3.15 was a prophecy, but it became true in Christ. That the enemy bruised the heel of Jesus through the pain of the cross, but Jesus has crushed his head. And the enemy will tempt you and me, and we will fail the test at times. But when the enemy comes, the offer for us is to turn to the one who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we don't avoid evil by focusing on sin or the temptation, but by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And in Christ, we hear and we can, can trust the proclamation of the Father over us that you are the beloved son, you are the beloved daughter of God, and in you, he is well pleased. Let's pray. Well, God, I ask that you would push back the dark places of our own hearts, the places where we have consented, places where maybe we feel captive and obsessed. Set us free. Victor, Christ the victor, the one who has conquered. May we be caught up in your victor train that we know the, the triumphal power that comes through Christ. When we feel tested and tempted, may we turn to the one who is with us. And may we dwell with you, you with us, that we might resist. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.